1: I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we'll hear from two experts on two pressing issues, how to pay for infrastructure investments, and how we're doing in the fight against COVID-19. My first guest is tax policy expert, Donald Marin of the Urban Institute in Washington, DC. Don has been looking at some possible options for paying for infrastructure, such as President Biden's corporate tax proposals, a gas tax increase, a vehicle mileage tax, and a carbon tax. We'll get Don's views on the pros and cons of these ideas. Then I'll be joined by Concord Coalition National Field Director, Phil Smith, for a conversation with Emory University epidemiologist, Dr. Jody Guest. We spoke with uh, Dr. Guest on this program last fall about COVID-19, and we thought it would be a good idea to check back with her. Now that vaccines are being administered, restrictions are being loosened, and we're all wondering when we can get back to normal. Both subjects are getting a lot of attention in Washington and around the country because they hit home to families, businesses, and local governments in a way that many issues do not. I'll be right back with our two guests after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future, I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and for our first segment today, I'll be joined by Urban Institute tax policy expert, Donald Marin. Don, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thanks. Don is uh, is an Institute fellow and director of economic policy initiatives at the Urban Institute, one of Washington's most prestigious think tanks. From 2010 to 2013, he led the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center, collaboration with the Brookings Institution. Before joining Urban, Marin served in senior government positions, including as a member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors and Acting Director of the Congressional Budget Office. He's also taught at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy, Georgetown Public Policy Institute, and the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business. And I should say, in the interest of full disclosure, Marin serves on a number of boards, including the board of the Concord Coalition. So hearing from my boss today. <laughs> Don, um, uh, interested to get your take on uh, all things tax policy here. It, it seems to be the big hangup on infrastructure. Everybody wants to spend the money. Nobody's quite sure how they wanna raise it. Uh, so let's begin with the president's proposals. He's not been bashful about saying that we should go back to uh, revisit the 2017 tax cuts, uh, particularly for corporations and see if we can raise some money that way. What are the, the highlights of his uh, proposals and, and maybe some of the trade offs?
0: Yeah. So obviously, you, see, you know, the headline thing that uh, President Biden proposed is to roll back half of the reduction in the corporate tax rate that happened. Uh, so if you go back several years ago, the corporate tax rate used to be 35 uh, percent under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was signed by President Trump, it dropped down to 21 percent. Uh, and President Biden has proposed going back up to 28. Right. So halfway between the two. Uh, If you follow the political discussions, as you do, you know that there's already been a lot of public negotiation over that that is pointing more towards a number like 25, Uh, but 28 was the official one in his proposal. Uh, Second item had to do with how you tax multinational corporations. This is an area that gets just into mind numbing detail and gets really hard, Um, but kind of at a high level. There's a challenge of how you tax multinationals because you don't want to accidentally create incentives for them to move stuff overseas. You don't want to accidentally punish them and overtax them for having operations overseas, if that's the competitive thing to do. Uh, And multinationals can be very creative about locating things like intellectual property to try to get the best tax treatment for themselves. And so what the president has proposed is taking some provisions that were enacted as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and basically strengthening them in a way that would hopefully generate more revenue uh, and limit it, and limit some of the international gaming that's going on. Um, and on that front, I think one of the most notable things you've seen is that that discussion actually has two tracks to it. One is a what US policy should be track. And then the second is uh, coordinating with the rest of the developed world because this turns out to be an area where it's hard to go alone. Uh, And then the third feature, the third element I I would highlight is there's been a lot of concern in recent years that you sometimes see some corporations pay what appear to be very low taxes or even zero taxes. Um, And we can get into discussion about why that happens. I think many of those cases are actually quite legitimate and fine and are are natural result of our tax system. But some people are troubled by that. Uh, And so the president has proposed to create basically a second tax system uh, based not on the tax measure of income, but on the financial accounting measure of income and have basically a minimum tax based on that measure of income.
1: Yeah. Is that uh, like a worldwide... Alternative minimum tax proposal.
0: Well, there are actually two minimum taxes. It's hard to keep up. There is there is a minimum tax proposal that has to do with the multinational corporations, which basically says, you know, I won't get into details, but the spirit of it is that income abroad uh, shouldn't be able to get down to too low a tax rate. And then the second is, what if you have a company that, for whatever reason, uh, is able to pay very low taxes in the U.S. relative to um, kind of its tax measure of income, uh, would be to have a backstop minimum tax based on its financial accounting measure of income. Uh, and I
1: I think those uh, proposals in, in total are uh, designed to raise close to two trillion dollars. Uh, Does that seem like a reasonable assumption uh, to
0: you? So it seems very hard to raise that kind of money. And I guess the the third thing, the fourth thing I should note is there are also proposals to to strengthen enforcement uh, and compliance by businesses. Um, it's very hard to see how you get up to those kinds of numbers, I mean, as I said already the political tea leaves are clearly pointing to something like 25% not 28% as being the target right so that reduces the revenue a lot. Uh, the international stuff is probably hard to accomplish all the components of that. There have been public discussions about limiting the minimum tax based on what's called book income to just a handful of companies. And so you've already seen that uh, kind of the revenue aspirations there are being trimmed back.
1: It is is it, it it is really mind numbingly uh, complicated. Now, the rate thing is not that complicated, but the rate is somewhat dependent. I mean, how much you would get out of that on all of the other things, the um Deductions, credits, tax—you know, exclusions, yep. whatever, whatever else is built into the code. Uh, so I take it there's, uh, you know, some of these ideas for having a minimum amount is is kind of a way to cut through that and simplify, I guess. Uh, and I, but I'm I'm wondering if that produces some uh, unintended consequences of its own. If you, I mean, the alternative minimum tax wasn't very popular uh, as applied to individual income taxes here in the United States. I mean, are there some complications that make that quite not as um, attractive as it might appear on its face?
0: Yeah, so for for the minimum tax based on book income, right? So not the multinational version, but just the one that applies to all companies. uh, There are some very good reasons why companies sometimes pay low taxes. Uh, The first one is that uh, sometimes companies have losses Uh, Right, and our tax code doesn't let them get basically a sudden tax rebate from the federal government when they have losses. Instead, what they get to do is spread it over multiple years. Uh, And so it could be that in a given year, a company has what appear to be, you know, has profits in that year, but has, you know, not gotten full credit for the losses it incurred in the past. Uh, And, you know, you from kind of a pure economics of tax policy point of view, you don't want to punish punish companies for having losses, you should give them time and opportunity to use them. Uh, A second issue has to do with stock based compensation, uh, which again becomes rapidly a very detailed issue, but the spirit of it is that uh, companies whose stock price goes up a lot discover that their stock-based compensation uh, that they've given employees and executives becomes valuable. And at a certain point, they get to write it off for tax purposes that can lower their tax bill substantially. Uh, But again, as tax policy, that makes perfect sense because it's also accompanied by those executives and employees uh, recognizing individual income tax and having to pay large taxes on that. Uh, So both of those are things where the current treatment strikes me as being a fair and appropriate way to structure the tax system. And it just has an implication that sometimes companies pay uh, low taxes because those things happen to apply in those particular years. Uh, If you make it hard for that to happen, then you start distorting choices about how companies compensate their workers, right, about cash versus uh, stock-based compensation. uh, And you start punishing companies that happen to have losses. Uh We have
1: you know big big political debates about the uh, the role of the corporate tax and and um, how it's administered and and how much it raises. Does it have as much effect on the economy, do you think as as both sides might indicate? I mean, the Republicans would argue that their 2017 tax cut uh, with the corporate provisions contributed to a um, a more robust economy uh democrats would say no it was just a one-time sugar high that um cut taxes so you gotta you gotta break and it, but but it, it did not do anything for long-term economic growth um how do you I mean, is, wait i mean I not, surprisingly,
0: not surprisingly i'm a truth is in the middle kind of guy um and i would say that on on the corporate side The main way I would think about its effect on our economy is over the long term about whether you can design a tax system that raises the revenue you need but encourages investment in the US or at least avoids discouraging investment in the US. And then it's the accumulation of investment in the US over time that helps make the economy more productive, that pushes up wages and all those kinds of things. Uh, In the standard models uh, and standard analysis, those effects are real, but they take time to accumulate and they're kind of medium or modest in size. I think back in the discussion over the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, four or five years ago, I think you saw a lot of hyperbole uh, among some advocates for it who were talking about, you know, very rapid boost to investment, very rapid boost to wages uh, that one cannot see any evidence for in in the data. Um, And on the other hand, you know, the the claim that this has no effect is, you know, clearly not right either, right? You know, to the extent you can really design things so that they end up having more investment in the US, eventually that has a payoff for our economy.
1: Well, uh, it doesn't seem like the Republicans are prepared to go along with uh, any proposal to fund infrastructure that would roll back the uh, any of these provisions from 2017, but uh, they some of them might be willing to consider, different methods of raising revenue, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. let me uh, let me first just uh, remind our viewers that this is facing the future. Uh, this is Bob Bixby, your host and I'm talking with tax policy expert Donald Marin of the Urban Institute. We're discussing various uh, proposals in Washington for, uh, financing infrastructure investments. We were talking about the president's corporate tax proposals. And I wanted to turn now to some other ideas which are more uh, traditionally tied to infrastructure, such as user fees. I mean, traditionally, the highway uh, fund, the highway trust fund, is financed with a gas tax. So that's one of the proposals is, should we in, uh, increase the gas tax as a way of financing a part of the president's uh, infrastructure proposals? Um, what are the issues around the gas tax?
0: Well, you know, the number one thing you should start any conversation about the gas tax on is that the gas tax has been the same since 1993. Uh, There have been a lot of infrastructure discussions and conversations in the intervening, whatever that is, 28 years, Uh, but it has always been politically very difficult to touch because it's a very salient tax, it obviously affects ordinary normal Americans uh, and has been very unpopular in some circles about increasing. That needs to be balanced against the fact that, uh, you know, user fees have a logic to them, right? User fees have this notion that the people who benefit from a specific activity should help contribute to the cost of it. gasoline taxes are kind of a rough justice way of doing that. Um, And so many people over time have suggested that they be increased as a way to to help fund infrastructure, not pay for it all, right? There's a role for the government to provide a public good, uh, but to contribute to things. Um, and what we're seeing today is, you know, a rekindling of that discussion, uh, but with the usual political concerns that it may, you know, fall especially hard on people with low incomes, uh, may fall especially hard on, you know, people in rural areas or people who have to drive a lot. Um, but on the other hand, you know, could be an attractive source of revenue if other sources of revenue are not not available.
1: One of the... Uh... I guess one of the, one of the uh, reasons the gas tax has been evolving and not bringing in as much revenue as it um, as is needed is uh, gas uh, is, is fuel efficiency <laughs> in vehicles and uh, people not driving as much or using less gas. So and, and then the evolution of uh, elect- electric vehicles. Uh, some people have suggested that an alternative method might be a so-called vehicle mileage tax, which would be an entirely new thing where the tax would be based on uh, mileage rather than gas consumption. Um, do you think that that's a feasible option and what might be some of the, the hurdles?
0: Yeah, so, t- so focusing on the miles that vehicles travel makes a lot of sense in concept. Um, I said before that the gas tax is a user fee in kind of a rough justice sense, but it is very rough. Right, because the demand you put on the roads basically has to do with how many miles you drive and then perhaps how big your vehicle is and how much damage it does to the, the roads. And that's related to gasoline use, but obviously there are these examples where it has nothing to do with gas use, like uh, electric vehicles, for example. Um, and so economists and policy analysts have talked for a long time about trying to design a system that more closely aligns the payments you make to the, basically the, your use of the roads tracking vehicles mile miles traveled is a is a natural way to do that. We have improving technology for doing that, right? Lots of people now drive around with transponders and phones and whatever that in principle could measure this. But I would describe it still as being in its early days. Uh, There are some states that are experimenting with versions of this, uh, but my sense is it would be hard to scale that up at the federal level rapidly. Um, And so I would think that sort of thing would be on the long-term plan uh, for funding infrastructure, but not something if you need revenue in the next couple of years. Um, another alternative that has
1: been popular with economists for years, both Republicans and Democrats, and was recently proposed by former Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson and uh, and uh, former Clinton administration uh, advisor uh, Erskine Bowles, uh, is a carbon tax. And um, I, I, you know, anything that's very popular with uh, with Analysts uh, sometimes is not popular with politicians, but, but um, what about the idea of imposing some sort of a uh, carbon tax to help pay for infrastructure?
0: So there are two pieces there, right? There's the imposing the carbon tax and then how you use the revenue. Um, I would say you know, large swaths of economists are in favor of a robust carbon tax, if you can find a way to get politically there to do it, um, and the reason why is it just provides a very strong incentive to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and for people to be creative in how they do it, right? We know that things like solar and wind and whatnot have to be part of the solution, but if you have a broad-based, robust carbon tax, it gives people and businesses incentives to think of all sorts of other ways that they might accomplish the goal of uh, reducing the amount of greenhouse gases we put out. So it makes enormous sense as a price signal if you can make it large enough. Uh, Then there's the debate about how to use the revenue. Uh, As you might imagine, the ideas for using the revenue greatly outstrip the amount of revenue that's available. Um, There's been a lot of discussion about whether you should rebate some of it back to uh, American households in the form of dividends, uh, basically as a way, you know, kind of like a a universal basic income, kind of like the checks that we saw out of the CARES Act, uh, basically as a way of saying, look, you know, we want to change the price of using fossil fuels, but it's not a revenue grab by the government. Uh, Another strategy is, as you say to use some of the revenue to fund things like infrastructure. Um, And I would say as a, a, in general, very sympathetic and advocate for a carbon tax, that really I think the issue there is how do you build a political coalition for a carbon tax, uh, such that you get one that's big enough to be material and help us with our environmental challenges. And I'm personally quite open to a broad array of uses for the revenue that might build that political constituency. Uh, infrastructure in principle might be one, um, although thus far we've seen that from the Biden administration, uh, carbon tax is not something they've put forward. Um, and uh, they've also, you know, have this specific concern about not wanting to burden um, low and moderate income Americans actually Americans up to $400,000 in income so well above moderate income up into, you know, kind of uh, upper middle middle whatever you want to call it. Um, and. It's hard to think about how you would design a carbon tax or a gasoline tax that would accomplish that. Uh, you know, Maybe you could combine it with some sort of re- revenue rebate uh, that offsets, on average, uh, the burden that's placed on those folks. Early, I would say that the politics of a carbon tax at the moment and using it for infrastructure are a heavy lift. But certainly, as a technical analytic matter, it deserves to be in the mix.
1: Yeah, this sounds like a, a lot of things that work out uh, on in in the locker room when you're drawing up the uh, the plays on the on the chalkboard. And uh, you know, if you're looking for practical things that can be done right away, uh, you know, the 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 corporate tax rate, raising the corporate tax rate, or raising the gas tax, seems to be the two things that are in. You know, you you can get immediate results from a lot of the other things. Seem to be uh, would require a, a new design. Um, Uh, including some of the other proposals uh, on the corporate tax side that the president has put into. Um, It, 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 it strikes me that uh, one way or the other, it's, it is going to be difficult to uh, come up with a a policy to, to pay for this uh, right away. So we, we end up at this stalemate. I'm not, I'm not sure that that uh, political stalemate is going to be broken anytime soon.
0: Yeah, so it's hard. And then of, then, of course, as I'm sure you've talked about on the show before, I mean, there's an issue about to what extent do you actually need to raise revenue that's the same size as the new spending you want to do? Um, and to what extent does it make sense uh, to continue to finance things with uh, with new debt? Um, and I expect we will see the conversation turn in that direction uh, as this evolves.
1: Yeah, that's kind of where I was going with that. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 it does... It does look like it's almost, you look at the revenue options and say you can't get there from here um, because one side has is, is, uh, put a, put off anything uh, uh, related to the corporate tax. And the Biden administration has locked itself into this idea that you can't raise taxes on anybody earning less than 400000 a year, which strikes me as a, a very uh, limiting um, and artificial constraint when you're trying to you know, enact a $4 trillion uh, new plan. So I I, I do worry that the default mechanism there is, well, you know, interest rates are low and we can sort of borrow. So I I do worry about that. Uh, Thank you, Don, for joining us this morning. I'm sure we'll be checking back in as uh, things progress or don't progress uh, on the Hill. But I think uh, you've given us a great overview of some of the options for paying for infrastructure, whether the politicians can agree on them or compromise on them, uh, we'll have to see. Uh, This is Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'll be back with National Field Director Phil Smith and Emory University epidemiologist Dr. Jody Guest right after these short messages. We'll be be getting a a progress report, an update on COVID-19. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And in this segment, we turn our attention to the COVID-19 pandemic. Concord Coalition uh, National Field Director, Phil Smith, joins me as we welcome back to Facing the Future, Dr. Jody Guest. Hello. Thank you, Bob. (laughs) Hi, everyone. Dr. Guest joined the uh, Rollins School of Public Health and uh, School of Medicine at Emory University Uh, full-time as a professor in the fall of 2015. Previously, she served as the director of HIV research at the Atlanta VA Medical Center and an associate professor at Emory University, both in the School of Public Medicine and Rollins School of Public Health. She's a leading COVID-19 outbreak, uh, she is leading a COVID-19 outbreak response team in Hall County, Georgia. Uh, and she serves on the leadership team for the Emory COVID Response Collaborative, uh, working on the outbreak response testing to support state health districts. And since the pandemic began, she's been a regular contributor to national media on the pandemic and is the host of Emory's weekly COVID-19 Facebook Live updates. Uh, so we have, a, uh, we have a well-informed person uh, to give us kind of a status report on COVID-19. Phil, uh, you want to uh, kick things off here?
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Jody, for being with us again. Uh, I think so much has happened since you were last here in July of, of that horrible year, 2020. Yep. Um, and I think about all the issues we talked about, the conflict pollution, there's such a direct link between what you do, healthcare in general, but specifically epidemiology, in uh, federal budget policy because at the Conquer Coalition, we're all about a, a long-term sustainable federal budget. There's no way you can do that unless our healthcare system is sustainable. So uh, thank you for all the great work that you're doing. I think I'd like to start off with just the wonderful, the good news. I think back last year, we were hoping that we would have a vaccine, that it would have a high efficacy rate. And uh, if I remember I quoted you, you were, you, you were quoting Dr. Fauci uh, saying and hoping that we would have a vaccine by winter. That came true, the efficacy rate is just through the roof, and we've we've got a lot to celebrate uh, with this vaccine, do we not?
3: Absolutely, you know, I just don't think we could have anticipated that the vaccines would both come out at the exact time that we were hoping for and have efficacy rates that were beyond what we hoped for. And they they really have, you know, even today, Moderna announced that their 12 to 18, excuse me, 12 to 17 year olds in their Teen Cove trial, show fantastic efficacy, 100% protective of COVID-19. We're seeing these home runs one after the other with these vaccines. and, um, And as a result, we're seeing cases go down, we're seeing deaths go down, we're seeing hospitalizations go down. And those are very specifically aligned with how well these vaccines are working. So beyond our wildest dreams of what we're seeing with these vaccines.
2: Well, it sounds like lots of home runs and some grand slams. When last time we talked, we were barely even getting on the first base because all we could do is try to mitigate with masks. And we weren't even doing a good job with that <laughs> to a large degree. So, so now we have masks that we can still mitigate with and we have the vaccine. So, uh, so there's lots of things we can do. But, but regionally, from place to place, um, it's not all even, is it? There are some regions of the country that are doing better than others.
3: Absolutely. There are regions of the country that are doing better than others with cases and certainly wide variability with vaccination rates as well. And so, you know, at the moment we see from case perspectives, we actually see a couple of different states kind of popping up and they're not clumped together. Generally speaking, we've seen the southeastern states not doing quite as well as a lot of the northeastern states. From a vaccine perspective and the percent of the population of a state that's been vaccinated, there are are very specific regional differences where the southeastern states are very, very much behind. And the northeastern states, most of them are crossing the 50% 50 of their entire state being vaccinated. And that's still with people under 12 not even being eligible to be vaccinated. So um, big differences there for sure.
1: What what accounts for that? I mean, mean, I'm asking you to speculate a little bit, but I mean, um, is it local state policy or cultural differences? Uh...
3: I I think some of it is cultural. Some of it is um, leadership of states that have been very active in promoting vaccines. It really matters when leaders talk about being vaccinated themselves Um, Part of it is also a rural-urban divide, and we see more more rural communities in the South, and we know that there's a big difference in vaccination rates there. Um, I think those are some of the biggest, but there are also some longstanding differences. Healthcare in the South, particularly in rural communities, is not as robust as it is in a lot of our northern states, and COVID-19 continually capitalizes on that, including with vaccination rates, not just with case rates.
1: Yeah, I think that that's um, an interesting thing that uh, that I picked up on when I read about this as a as a rank amateur in the healthcare field uh, is you know the question why wear a mask. Um, uh, it going beyond trying to protect yourself. It's this this question of. Um, trying to reach, I hate the term herd immunity, but, Mm -hmm. but trying to limit transmission because transition, because if you, if you allow the virus to spread, uh, it has more of a chance of mutating. uh, And, and, you know, it's not that that's, it can't be controlled, but you just never know. So trying to tamp down the, uh, the spread of this thing seems particularly important, and, and masks can be important in that, I would think.
3: Absolutely. You know, we saw huge differences in masking rates across the country, and we know that there are really big differences in vaccine hesitancy, according to a couple of very large national polls. And they consistently show masking and vaccine hesitancy. Masking is lower in the Southeast. Vaccine hesitancy is higher in the Southeast. And and those are big barriers to controlling COVID-19 that um, we've seen this entire pandemic, this regional variation um, based on on some of these longstanding ideas.
1: I'm going to uh, go back to you after this, Phil. I'm going to, uh, just to, to give you a heads up, I want to, I'm going to give in another question here on this subject, because one of the things that was interesting when we talked to you uh, last year was uh, what the effect would be on other illnesses if we ramped up our defenses against COVID-19. And, and I was wondering at that time, uh, you know, would we really have a a bad flu season because people were saying oh my god this the flu and the COVID are going to hit at the same time and right. um but but so in protecting against covid uh it also had a byproduct of protecting against the regular flu uh,
3: completely we've seen an almost non-existent flu season this year um which- We needed, we needed something positive like that. Some good
1: news, yeah. We needed a break from.
3: (laughs) Our hospitals could not have handled a flu season that is standard for us. In addition to all the COVID nineteen cases that they were seeing, you know, COVID nineteen hospitalizations peaked in January, which would normally be when we would see a ton of hospitalizations with flu. What we know is our standard. Um, unfortunate number of deaths from the flu in the United States is around 34 to 35,000 people a year. It was 600 people this year. Um, You know, really striking differences. That's just deaths from flu. Our case numbers of flu were around 2000 cases. Um, So drastically different than we normally see, really showing how much masks, distancing and washing your hands are helpful for things beyond COVID 19. Um, certainly, I hope our country's gotten a little bit more used to washing our hands regularly. Um, <laughs> and that's good. And recognizing that when you have symptoms in, of the flu, staying away from other people and protecting your respiratory tract from getting out there with other people protects your entire community. And that's really important.
2: Jody, what um, as we look at the, the one of the saddest things of the COVID nineteen era is just the raw number of deaths. Uh, what is the official death count uh, approximately now that we're well more into a year of this pandemic?
3: Yeah. Um, so the so first of all, on May twenty fourth, so just yesterday, a year ago the New York Times published the first 100,000 deaths from COVID-19 on the front page. And um, that felt shocking, like completely shocking. We are a half of a million people beyond that. We're approaching 600,000 deaths in the United States from COVID-19. Thankfully, the death rate is drastically slowing down. Um, We had about 220 deaths yesterday. We should have none. Um, but 220 is really different than what we have been seeing and so that is great progress but we're approaching 600,000 deaths from this and that should should be staggering to every single person
1: you're listening to facing the future this is Bob bixby i'm talking to dr judy guest of the uh emory uh epidemiologist at emory university in atlanta and uh, she's giving us an update on uh, the COVID 19 pandemic. And Phil Smith, National Field Director of the Concord Coalition, uh, is joining me. I want to be a little bit of a uh, 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 pessimist, and I just want to be a little bit of a pessimist here, not not a pessimist, I want to be a, um, a, a, a warning, a Cassandra, because <laughs> everything is going great right now. I mean, hospitalizations, as you mentioned, are down, new cases, it's just dramatically dropping, Yes, mm-hmm. dropping, and it's a very, very, very positive uh, picture with, with vaccines up. So we're on a good track. So I, I just, my nature is to look around and say, okay, this was a very serious thing. What could go wrong? You know, Can, can this recovery that we seem to be on be derailed? Uh, and so I, I think about you know whether we sort of let our guard down too soon. One of the things that um, has come up, you know, it's a lot of uh, states and, and and businesses are loosening restrictions, dropping uh, mask mandates. And one of the things that's uh, been sort of controversial in all of this is the CDC guidelines about mask wearing. Uh, could you? maybe provide some clarity uh, to us and in the context of what could go wrong? (laughs) I mean, how could the good progress that we're making now derail?
3: Excellent question. Um, And the guidelines seem so straightforward and yet they're not quite as straightforward as they appear especially with titles of newspaper articles about them. Um, You know, so first of all, the guidelines were changed a week ago Friday as a specific response to how great the vaccines are working and so they are tied to very strong scientific data showing if you're fully vaccinated your protection is significant from getting COVID-19 and that is excellent Um, part of the problem is the the guidelines don't say take off your mask but that is the interpretation of them. And so the interpretation of these guidelines are really going to be where we potentially um, need to be careful. So the guidelines are for people who are fully vaccinated. That's anyone who's had their second dose of Moderna and Pfizer in our 14 days after that, or our 14 days after their one dose, Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So first of all, we have to know what fully vaccinated means. Secondly, it's showing you that if you're out in public and you're, you're, um, your immunity is revved up from these vaccines, you're very, very protected from COVID-19. You're not 100%, but you have significant protection. That is about individual risk. These guidelines are being interpreted though a little bit more about the population level. And so I am comfortable going out somewhere and not having a mask on if I'm with fully vaccinated people. I'm not yet fully comfortable not wearing my mask if I'm around people who are vaccinated and people who are not fully vaccinated. So I think we want to be careful about that. We also want to be very careful that these guidelines are not for people who are not fully vaccinated yet. They still are safest if they wear a mask, stay socially distanced, and continue to wash their hands, particularly indoors. I think we're all pretty clear that outdoor events unless they're very heavily crowded are safe for all of us um safer than we originally even thought but if if i were not fully vaccinated and i was indoors with people i don't live with i would be masking to protect the people that i'm with Um, we still need to remember that that your mask is about protecting the people you're around and so we're all still in this together. Um, when we see very large differences in vaccination rates in communities, what we know is not masking in some communities is a lot riskier than not masking in other communities. And, um, and that's not um, something everyone is talking about. And so we want to be careful with that. The last point I'll make on this one is that If cases continue to brew in communities, it is the perfect spot for variants to continue to grow and spread. And our vaccines are fantastic and they likely have very good efficacy against all the variants we now know about, but that doesn't mean those are all the variants we're going to get. And so we want those vaccines to continue to work really well and to do so, we need to keep the variants down and we do that by keeping the cases down. And we do that by either getting vaccinated or wearing your mask if you're not fully vaccinated.
2: You're also keeping a close eye on bed counts in hospitals and ICU bed counts in particular. And um, last year when you were with us, we had one particular region in Georgia that had zero beds available. So it was that was just, I mean, we've, we've improved a lot since then, right?
3: Absolutely. You know, hospitalizations are down, death rates are down. We're no longer tracking ICU beds the way we were. Um, It was, it was always shocking to see entire parts of a state that would have no ICU beds and, and knowing that people were being transferred perhaps hours away in order to find an ICU bed. You know, we were tracking ventilators. We were tracking oxygen supply, California for a while had no oxygen supply outside of a, a hospital and hospitals were starting to be concerned about their supply. We're not in that situation anymore. And that is thanks to significant masking and significant vaccinations.
1: And just to uh, last, last question here, but I know it's uh, on everybody's minds. How do you think all this translates into uh, public schools opening in the fall?
3: I think that we will see them opening. I think the fact that we now have two vaccines, one coming and one already approved for people all the way down to the ages of 12, means that we have a real chance of having a large percentage of our kids, 12 and older, vaccinated in schools. And all, of course, all teachers and administrators and staff are eligible to be vaccinated. Um, I would really urge everyone to do that, and um, that's going to keep the schools safer. There, um, it will be, I'm sure new guidelines about masking in schools at the moment. The current guidelines are that schools camps this summer should still have masking for everyone who's indoors. Um, As more and more 12 to 15 year olds get vaccinated, we might see that change. And so um, in order to see that change, we want everyone to consider getting their children who are in those age groups vaccinated. We also have trials that are, you know, going on clear down to six months of age. Um, And so in the fall, hopefully we'll see some vaccine data on our even younger people. Those trials are a little trickier because they can't use the same dosages that our adult vaccines do. And so they have a couple of additional steps, so they'll take a little bit longer, um, but they're coming
1: well uh I think we'll have to wrap it up there but it's on a considerably more optimistic note than we wrapped it up with you last year yes. in July uh, when we first talked and that's uh, that's a a very good thing so the it's it's much better to be trying to keep good progress uh, going uh, rather than looking at the uh, at the huge challenge that we had when the pandemic was just getting ramped up last summer and it got, probably ramped up a lot uh, more than uh, many of us were thinking uh, even at at that time. So good news and uh, let's keep it going. Uh, Jody Guest, thank you for being our guest today on Facing the Future. This is Bob Bixby. We'll be back uh, next week with another edition of Facing the Future.